more to follow. <laughs> That's very true, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, Psalm 119. We are not going to read Psalm 119, but there are a number of reasons that I want to bring Psalm 119 to your attention. Psalm 119 is actually what we would call like an acrostic in the Hebrew language. If you were to read this psalm, it would actually be, it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Um, and if you are taking notes, just a couple of facts here. There are 1,189 chapters in the scriptures. And Psalm 119, the middle, the middle chapter of the Bible, by the way, is actually Psalm 118. And Psalm 118, there are two verses here, and I'm going to read these for you. But they are actually, uh, Psalm 118, 118 verses 8 and 9 are actually the middle two verses of the scriptures. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And verse 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So out of these chapters, Psalm 119 is unique because it is actually in the Hebrew, every one of the letters, just like we have A, B, C, D, etc. There are 22 letters that are in the Hebrew alphabet. And every one of these chapters, every one of these chapter or every one of these sections that you will see at the beginning of your uh, heading there. For example, some of your Bibles may not have it, but you will see the first one, for example, is Aleph. A-L-E-F or A-L-E-P-H. It's a transliteration. So the Aleph there is simply the beginning letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And every one of them goes successfully. So Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Daleth, etc. all the way through. And every one of them are a, a, a couplet of eight <laughs> verses. So you can go to any one of them, for example. You can go down to Psalm 119 verse 153, for example, and you will see the last three letters there, resh, sin, or shin. It is simply a, 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 a di, um, um, I can't remember the little term that is used. It starts with D-I-A, but shin, sin, it's basically the way that it is written in the Hebrew, and then the last one is tau. But every one of these, you can count them out. There's eight verses to each one of them. Now you say, well, that's not a, a great deal until you realize or until you know that in the original Hebrew, every one of these, so for example, Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8, all eight of these verses in Hebrew actually start with the letter Aleph. And then the second set of eight would start with the letter Beit. And then so, so forth. So verse 17 starts with a gimel or the letter G in uh, translation for Hebrew down through verse 24. So that's a unique feature. There are only a few places in scripture where you actually find something like this. And another one is in Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. And Lamentations chapter 3 actually has a triplet and there are 66 verses in Lamentations, and there are three verses to each letter of the Hebrew alphabet as you go through that particular passage. Now, of course, we all know, I'm sure, Lamentations chapter 3, if you've ever sung the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, you will know that that comes from Lamentations chapter 3. 
The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So, what, is, what else is unique about Psalm 119? Well, Psalm 119 actually has the greatest diversity of ways to express or understand the term Bible or scriptures or statutes or testimonies than any other chapter in the scriptures. For example, look with me in Psalm 119, verse 8. I will keep your statutes. statutes. Verse 29. Put false ways for me and graciously teach me your way or your law. And then verse 30. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your judgments or rules before me. We'll actually look at that later on when we get into the section on bibliology, um, which is the first section that we will follow on from the prolegomena. But I want to point out Psalm 119, verse 9. Somebody read that for us, good and loud. Okay, thank you. How can a young man keep his way pure by taking heed, as the King James says, according to your word? There is no other standard that we have available to us in order to be able to understand, not just to be able to understand God's word, but for us to be able to see change in our life. The word of God is all there is. And, and the New Testament confirms this. We have mentioned this before, 2 Timothy chapter, or first, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that the scriptures are good for all that pertain to life and godliness. So if you want to be encouraged in the word of God, some, somebody read, for example, Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Yahweh, your word stands firm in heaven. Okay. Your word stands forever. Somebody else read verse 11 for us. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Okay. And Psalm 1, or 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Light to my path. Now, let me give you a little bit of an understanding of the Hebrewism here that is found within this particular verse, a light to your path. In the Old Testament times when, when David is writing, a lot of times we get so focused on everything that's taking place around us, we want to have the big picture. I heard somebody say that. We want to have the big picture. This is not what God is promising in his word. In Bible times and in ancient times, and this still held true for a number of centuries, a number of millennium, the shepherds in particular would wear a little tiny, it was almost like a little light. They would either have a little bit of oil in there, a hardened oil, a uh, type of oil, or something that would allow them to be able to almost like light a candle. And this, this could actually be strapped to the exterior of their leg as they were walking. So if they were walking at night, for example, a messenger of the king, it's a moonless night, he would strap one of these on and he would actually go. And as he walks, how much light do you think that's going to give? One step at a time. One step at a time. It's just going to move him just to be able to go to that next step so that he can see what's in front of him. It's going to protect him from falling down into a pit. Now, do you remember what happened in Pilgrim's Progress? For those of you who have read Pilgrim's Progress, what happens when 
pilgrim actually gets off the path. And his way is not being lit by the word of God. He's doing it because of comfort purposes. He ends up in Doubting Castle. And what happens when he ends up in Doubting Castle? What does he begin to doubt? Life? He begins to doubt God. He begins to doubt the the truth, the veracity of Scripture as to whether it's going to be able to redeem him or to be able to get him out of this situation. They're being beat upon by 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 uh, uh, the, the giant who lives in Doubting Castle. And and I'm going to be honest. It is easy to be able to get so despondent and so filled with despair in your life that you can actually feel like you are being beaten down by a giant. And when we are being beaten down by the giant of despair, the giant of doubting castle, what's the best way to be able to get that comfort? What do we what do we tell people? What if maybe you heard and it's in books and I mean and not I'm not talking about self-help books, but you can go down to the Christian bookstore for example and there are a lot of encouraging mugs or calendars or devotionals or whatever it may be that you can go down there and get. And what are they? What are they trying to do with those things? Are they trying to make millions? Well, some people are, but why do people put those things together? Why do you think that people put those things together in the first place? Encouragement. Yeah. There's all kinds of devotionals. Go, go in. You don't have to do it right now, but you can type in 365 days of comfort or 365 days of whatever. Tie it in with Christianity on Amazon.com or, or Google or whatever, and you're going to come up with pages of books or calendars or T-shirts or whatever it may be. Now, the reality is that while those things may be good and you can have cute little phrases or you can have cute little sayings or, or why sayings of the world, for example, there is nothing better than Scripture to actually point us back to the reality of where we should be in our lives. Because God is the one that we should be focused on. We should be focused on His Word. It's not a matter of being focused on what the world has to offer us because what the world has to offer is going to be empty, vain. That's it. So I just wanted to point out Psalm 19 as we actually start. We're going to try to finish this section. I am almost done with Lesson 4. Um, and so, Lord willing, I'm going to have that available for next Sunday evening, even though we won't be having doctrinal class next Sunday evening. It'll be the Lord's table um, that we'll be having. Um, but we will be back upstairs for the Sunday evening for the Lord's table. Um, but uh, the following Sunday, on the first Sunday of December, which is December 3rd, um, then we will continue with uh, the next section, which you already have in your book right now, but I want to make sure that you're able to get ahead. Okay? So, page 37, we ended with question 5, and so we're going to go now to question 6. What are the categories, and we have talked about this briefly, but so we're not going to take a lot of time here. We want to try to get to some of the other sections within the book here. But what are the categories of systematic theology or doctrine as found on page 37? What's the first one? Bibliology, that's the next one that we're going to be looking at. And bibliology is simply dealing with the inspiration, the inerrancy, the authority, and the canonicity of the Bible. 
Now, inerrancy simply means that it is what? Without error. Without error. Okay? So you either have to believe that God's word is without error or you're going to begin to question. So for example, if we're dealing with Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11, there are a lot of modern scholars, including in evangelicalism, who will try to tell you that Genesis 1 through 11 is not reality. If you come to the point where you doubt the creation and the account as given by God in the first 11 chapters, you have to get rid of everything else in the scripture. It is that foundational. For example, let's talk about a couple of these real quick. If you get rid of Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11 as being reality... So in other words, if we say Adam and Eve was not real, if we say the Garden of Eden was not real, it was just a story uh, to be able to explain some things from a Hebrew perspective. Here's some of the things that you lose. Number one, in no particular order, you lose the fall. Under fall, you also lose original sin. Because if we take the world's perspective and the evolutionary process, what does the evolutionary process say? Man is getting better. God's word says man's not getting better. And so if we get rid of Genesis chapter 3 and we get rid of the fall, how do we come up with original sin? Because original sin could not have evolved if man is getting better and better. What's something else that we might lose? from Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11. Flood. And from the flood, we deal with the judgment of God in its finality. Now, there are even some biblical scholars, or some who claim to be biblical scholars, who will tell you that the flood is actually nothing more than a localized flood. Now, the Bible is clear that the waters actually rose above 22 feet above the tops of the tallest mountain. And, of course, the skeptic would say, well, you know, Mount Everest is 29,028 feet tall, so therefore, there's no way that it rose another 22 feet above that. Well, that would, that would be easily explained when you look at the tectonic plates within the earth and how everything has shifted and moved. Mount Everest wasn't always the tallest mountain, and it certainly didn't stand at 29,028 feet. There is an explanation for every one of these, and as we go through some of these aspects of theology, we're going to look at things like that in a little bit more depth. What is something else that might be, go missing if we are saying that Genesis 3, 1 to 11 is not reality? Tower of Babel. Okay, Tower of Babel. What does the Tower of Babel explain? Languages. Languages. How about this one? Creation. Now, in the Old Testament, when we are talking about creation and we're talking about what we believe God has done and what he created, there are always going to be skeptics who don't believe God at his word. They don't want to take God at his word. The question we have to ask ourselves is, if the worldview is correct, what is it that they are actually trying to remove? God. God. That's the bottom line. 
You can sum up any one of these and this entire book that we've got on doctrine, you can sum it all up in that one phrase that the world wants to get rid of God. You see, the world doesn't compare or the world doesn't care whether there are contrasting views in regards to how you view life. For example, when was the last time you ever saw somebody complain about Hinduism and the idea of, re- or of reincarnation? When was the last time anybody complained about Hinduism or Buddhism or Confucianism? When was the last time anybody complained about those things? They don't. I have said this before, when, 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 you're, when you're doing whatever it is that you're doing, and we found this even in West Africa, it didn't matter whether it was the Muslims or those who were animistic, they had no uh, spiritual beliefs in regards to the scriptures whatever, uh, whatsoever, but you could have people who had a, let's call it a spicy vocabulary, you know, where they take the Lord's name in vain, and it was prevalent even in amongst places, even in, amongst the people of Africa. But I have never, ever, ever heard somebody take Muhammad's name in vain. Think about that. You ever hit your thumb? Hit the wrong nail? Oh, Muhammad! People don't do that. And I am not trying in this, in this lesson to be able to find fault with those religions. The reality, though, is this. People don't care, and Satan... Hear me carefully. Satan does not care which God you serve as long as you don't serve the right God. Satan does not care which God you serve as long as you don't serve the right God. And further, Satan doesn't care if you as a believer serve God, just don't serve him now. Serve him tomorrow. Wait a little bit longer. Young people, you've got your whole life in front of you. Don't worry about doing that now. And before long, you find out that it's too late. So, bibliology, very important. What's the second one? Theology proper. Now, when we add the term proper after that, we are simply referring now to the doctrine, the study of God the Father. Okay, that's what we're actually going to be dealing with in chapter 2. This is the existence and being of God, including the Trinity, but specifically in regards to God the Father. Okay, what's the next one? C. Christology. This is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we are, we're getting ready to come up to one of the two greatest times of the year. Christmas, which celebrates the Incarnation, which celebrates the, the, the first coming, the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're dealing with... The second one, which is the Resurrection Sunday. And in the Resurrection, we're dealing with what? Death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And shortly after that, when he returns to heaven, says he's going to come back again. This is why we celebrate the Lord's table. Number four. Pneumatology, from the word pneumos. Pneumos, simply meaning the work of the Holy Spirit. So this is the proper term. And there are a lot of there there are a lot of doctrines, there are a lot of churches that actually go astray in this one doctrine right here. Now you can actually go astray on any one of these doctrines and it'll take you down a path that will end up leading you the wrong direction. I was telling my mom this morning, uh, there is a, a gentleman who was in evangelical circles, um, pretty well known. He wa- he did blogs and writing and things like that. And um, about a year ago, he converted to. Mormonism. 
somebody who is supposedly an evangelical Christian. And again, I've shared this with you before, but fully 25% plus consistently down through the last several years of those who convert to uh, Mormonism or who convert to Jehovah's Witness, some type of cult like that, 25% of them come out of churches just like ours. Every year. Because people don't know the truth. They don't know biblical doctrine. Okay, number five. Anthropology. So we use the word as well, anthropologist. So somebody who studies man, culture, society. Um, anthropology is simply the doctrine of humanity or the doctrine of man. And we will deal with uh, original sin in this chapter. What's the sixth one? Hamartiology. From hamartias, which is the Greek word for sin or trespass. Number seven, soteriology. soteriology. I love soteriology. We are actually going to deal with, in this chapter, we're going to look at this further, ordo salutis. And ordo salutis is simply the Latin term that means order of salvation. In other words, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? So in theological terms, we ask what came first. Did God's work come first? Did man's work come first? Did God and man have to work together to be able to produce salvation? Is it all of God, which we looked at this morning in our, in our class, and what we would define as monergism or synergism? And monergism, from the Greek word mono, simply meaning alone or single. And synergism means together with or in common with. Next one, number eight, angelology. We're going to be doing, de dealing with some deep stuff in this section. Angelology is not an easy subject because you are actually... Uh, we have found this before in our ministry. When you start dealing with the evil one, and as I, as I refer to him, the scriptures refer to him as the evil one, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, the wicked one, um, the, the accuser of the brethren, you're probably going to find that there are some great spiritual battles that we are dealing with when we get to this. Uh, because the evil one wants to remain as an angel of light. He doesn't want to be exposed for who or what he really is. Okay, We're not going to be trying to figure out or determine or ascertain how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. Okay? I know that that's kind of a funny comment or a funny question that people have. Well, I've got a real serious question for you. you know, did Adam have a belly button or did, you know, whatever. No, that's, that's not what we're dealing with here. Okay. Uh, next one, ecclesiology. ecclesiology. What did we see this morning? We dealt with the office of elder. We'll be dealing with the office of deacon. This is part of ecclesiology. This is how God views his church and how he wants his church to be run. Next one, eschatology. And there's a reason why it's last. I see Sam down there grinning. It's last simply because eschatology simply means the doctrine of last things or the doctrine of last times. So we will be looking at that. Question number seven. What is the relationship between exegetical, 
biblical and systematic theology and explain the construction metaphor on how these three intertwine. Who has an answer for us? This was from page 38. Exegetical theology <coughs> supplies the what? Building material for the foundation and structures. Biblical theology profounds, provides the what? Foundational. Foundational support for the structure. And systematic theology serves as the structure or the support for the foundation, or that, that is built on the foundation. So, for example, this building required footings, just like any other building does. And without those footings, you're going to have a building that's eventually going to collapse. So these three types of theology that we are going to be looking at, this is basically the relationship. So as we build, it's going to be like a brick wall. And as we build, we're going to start on this foundation, again, which is the Word of God, which is the Bible. And as then we build whatever structure that we have on this, let's put in a door. Don't laugh at my pictures here. And a window. And then we put a roof on it. Basically, all of these things that are coming together are coming together for one purpose. Again, 2 Peter 1.3. For all that pertains to life and godliness. You can't get up here without this here. Necessity. Number eight. What are the benefits and limitations of systematic theology? We found, and we've gone over this in a couple of classes, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. So what are the four divine purposes of scripture as found in this passage? Number one, it does what? Establishes teaching. We have had folks who have come and who have visited here who have told us that they were in attendance at a church here in Cheyenne and the pastor never opened his Bible once. That's a shame. Why go to church? All you have then is a glorified social club and it may not even be glorified. It's just a social club at that point. Because you can add whatever kind of rules, whatever kind of structure. And, and you know, there are rules in every organization that is out there. If I were to come around and ask you about your particular company, I'm sure that every one of your companies are built on rules. Whether it's the hospital, or whether it's painting, or whether it's doing electrical work, or whatever it may be, even in the military. They've got a whole bunch of rules. UCMJ. Why do we have to have the rules? Because at some point, somebody broke one. Somebody broke a common sense rule that said, hey, don't stick your finger in a light socket. <laughs> you know, I always, get, I always get a kick out of going down and getting medicine and the pharmacist wants to talk to you and stresses that these are to be taken orally uh, from, from a medical perspective. You know, seriously, what am I going to do? Shove it in my ear? You know, that amoxicillin probably isn't going to do me one bit of good by shoving it in my ear or up my nose. So rules are given for a reason, and that is because people have broken them. Well, let's go all the way back to creation when Adam was in the garden and he had a small set of rules. Simply this, populate the earth, don't eat of that tree. 
That's it. And was it enough? Nope. Because as soon as Adam could, he rebels against the Most High God. And we wouldn't be any different. We'd do the exact same thing in our lives. God sets the rules. He says, this is the standard. And we look up, the next thing we know, we're having to follow 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. To cleanse us from all the good things and righteousness. So establishing teaching. What's the second one? Ooh, we don't like confrontation, do we? We don't like, not only do we not like confrontation, but we don't like the third one, which is correction of error. In other words, there was a reason why we were disciplined when we were growing up. Anybody ever play sports in high school? Okay. If you played sports in high school or junior high or whatever, and you didn't do something or you didn't do it very well, what did the coach make you do? I'm sorry? Come sit right by him. Come sit right by him, okay? But what what did what did he make you do? What are some of the other punishments that you might go through in high school? Running laps, okay? Doing sprints. There are a lot of things that you might have to do. And what is he doing that for? Is he doing it because he hates you? Now, from a human perspective, we might say, yeah, he doesn't really like his job. But ultimately, it's to do what? It's to bring cohesion within the team to be able to get everybody on the same page. Discipline. And this is actually what brings you to number four, which is instruction in righteousness. Now, the instruction that God gives is for our benefit. The Bible says that the commands of God are not to be grievous. Now, there are a lot of times that whatever we do in our lives, I can remember there were times, just like I'm sure with my boys, I'm sure with me, I'm sure with my parents when they were little, and, and so forth, so on, all the way back to Adam and Eve. Uh, let's take Adam and Eve, for example, and they have Cain and Abel that come along. I'm sure there are times that they had to because Cain and Abel were still sinners. They were depraved sinners. I'm sure there are times that Adam and Eve had to tell Cain and Abel, hey, don't do that. Because as they were born, they're growing up, their curiosity is going to get them in trouble. And the same way we also have to have instruction in righteousness. One of the things that, that we were talking about with Rebecca this morning is, is uh, uh, the young lady that was here, she was sitting up there and she was talking about cross-stitching and crocheting and things like this. Anybody here crochet now or knit or anything like that? Yep, okay, sewing. Any of those things maybe that you did as a, as a kid. And there are instructions that you have to follow, otherwise you're going to end up with a mess. If you, and we were talking, Brother Jeremy and I, we were talking about uh, aviation. I love aviation. I can smell jet fuel all day long and it doesn't bother me. But when we're talking about aviation, I used to put models together. I had them hanging all over my ceiling. I had them on my bookshelves and, and, and everywhere. At one point, I had 31 airplanes and helicopters that I had hanging from my little tiny room in England. Now, when you open up, the thing as a little kid and you get your first model and you start putting that together what is the one thing you want to do you want to see the finished product right but you have to follow the instructions so you pull it out and you see the little man in the cockpit and you pull him out and you put him in place and you get it all nice and glued and get glue all over your fingers and you get your glue all over your mom's table and then you realize oh wait a minute i was supposed to do something else first before you actually put the man in the cockpit. Now, 
that's the instruction that God gives us in his word. There is a place and a time for everything. There is a certain pattern that God wants us to be able to establish for our lives. For example, when is the best time for a person to learn about biblical marriage? Before they get married. What about biblical stewardship, which is dealing with finances? What's the best way to be able to do that? What's the best time to do that? Before you get a job. So in everything that we do in life, whether it's finances or marriage or the church or within leadership or the way that we, we're driving down the road or whatever, learning to do what God wants us to do is going to get us or keep us from a lot of trouble. And again, God doesn't put these things into our lives and the rules aren't there to make our lives miserable. It's to be able to protect us. Now we think a lot of times though, especially as we're growing up, we think that the rules are there just to be able to hold us down, to be able to keep us from having a good time. You know, every society and every culture that you go into, every one of them, including those who have no written language, they all have rules in their culture. Every one of them. Uh, there were times when I can remember walking and we had to park the vehicle when we were in Liberia. We would just park off on the side of the road and I can remember asking the pastors that were with me, where's this village? Oh, it's just over the hill. Which hill? Oh, the next one. And two hours later, we're still walking and we finally get to a village that has never had a car in it in its life. Never, You can't get there by motorbike. And it's deep in the jungles. And when we got in there, you know what was interesting? The first thing they did, the chief came up and handed us a bottle of Coke. <laughs> Coca-Cola had made it to the deep jungles of Africa. But you know what they didn't have? It was the Word of God. There had never been a church there. And you know what was more important was as we sat there and we began to explain, we began to share things like this right here and tell them about the fall and tell them about the the flood and, and how God brings judgment. They say, well, we got rules. We got rules. Well, why do you have those rules? What is the purpose of those rules? Well, and one of them said, I can remember distinctly seeing him sitting there underneath the tree. He said, it's so we won't kill each other. And I said, well, wait a minute. I said, is, is there something wrong with killing one another? Well, yes, but we don't know why. The reason why is because God said so. Anybody here seen the movie Time Changer? Mm -hmm. Okay, I would highly recommend you watch that movie. Kind of hokey in places, but in some funny parts. But the bottom line is this. In Time Changer, this man goes forward 100 years and he realizes what happens when you take God out of the equation. And a little boy comes into his yard and the little boy ends up taking some marbles that belong to somebody else, another little boy. And he says, well, I have a question. Or the, 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 the professor tells this little boy, he says, don't you know that it's wrong to steal? And the little boy looks up at him and says, says who? You see, because if there's no, there has to be a moral standard somehow. And what is the moral standard? If you go to Papua New Guinea, where they still have headhunters there, what's the moral standard? Don't be killed. Kill the other people. If you're anybody, if, if, you're, if your enemy dies, eat them. Is that the moral standard we want for America in the 21st century? Absolutely not. 
So you know what the missionaries had to do? They had to go into those those areas, to those tribes, to be able to tell them there's a God, and God says this is the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? It could be your enemy. You see, because God set through biblical Christianity and Jesus Christ coming, he actually sets the world on its head. You know, all, ladies, through all, if you look at all of the things that are taking place in this world, and you were to look, for example, at the Muslim countries, as an example, places like Iran or Afghanistan, where you have to wear a full covering, it is only biblical Christianity that has allowed women to be able to have the rights that they have today. It is only biblical Christianity that has abolished slavery through most of the world or made it illegal. What are some of the benefits? He gave a few areas here. I'm just going to go ahead and read through these. Number one, it's an unabridged collection of biblical truth. Nowhere else where you get 66 books that have the same theme running through them from cover to cover. It's an orderly synthesis and summation of biblical doctrine. Again, if you want to know what God has to say about himself, go right here. Number three, another benefit is an imperative to fulfill the Great Commission. We talked about this this morning. What is the Great Commission ultimately? What is the purpose of the Great Commission? Spread the word, to spread the good news, the euangelion, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do we want to spread that good news? And my question is, why would you want to keep it to yourself? So others know. What's that? So others know. So they know what? Okay, about God. But, but let's talk about that for just a moment. If all they know is about God, does that actually save them? Okay, so okay that they need saved. Ask the average person in America whether they're a sinner. That'll tell you what the state of evangelicalism is within America today, because most people don't think they're a sinner. And what is a sinner? I'm not as bad as. Is that all it is, Sam? What what is it? What is sin? Okay, our nature from Adam. But what is the main thing about sin? Mike? What's that? Rebellion against God. Rebellion against God. That's why salvation is necessary. And the problem is that in the world today, you can go to any language, any culture. When we got off the plane in Liberia, people were not lined up by the hundreds and the thousands begging us to be able to hear the good news because they didn't care any more than they do here in America or than they did in England. And you know what you have to do? You have to persuade them from the gospel. You have to show them the truth. And as the Holy Spirit deals with their heart and deals with their life, He brings them to salvation. Number four, it's a repository of truth for expositional preaching and teaching. Look at Men like John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Stephen Lawson, any of these others, some of the, some of the men that we're talking about from, from 16th and 1700s, men who preached for weeks and months and years and decades in the same church and never ran out of stuff to talk about. 
never ran out of truth to be able to share. And you know what happens though? For example, during the Great Awakening, there were men who changed, men and women whose lives were changed, but when the preaching stopped, what happened in the home? What do you think happens? If, if all you get is fluffiness, if all you get is nice little sermonettes from preacherettes, what ends up happening to the home? Falls apart, doesn't it? Destroys. It gets destroyed. All it takes is one generation. You know, when, when, we, were, when we were in Liberia, and even going back to England, it doesn't matter where it is, but you can find, my mom and dad and I, we have talked about it, and, and there are a number of little churches and chapels all over the county where we were at in the county of Suffolk that used to preach the gospel on a regular basis, that used to be able to tell people the truth, that used to have sound biblical doctrine, and a lot of them now have been converted into homes or mosques or other places of worship because they can't afford them anymore. They can't keep them up because at some point somebody stopped preaching the truth. Somebody stopped telling people the way that it is, not the way that they would like to hear it. Number five, another benefit is a scriptural basis for Christian behavior in the church, home, and the world. We have a constitution, but that's not the Bible. It's just a guide. That's it. Number six, a defense of biblical doctrine against false teaching. Again, if you don't know how to be able to defend or define what you believe, and again, we started out with this, and I said, well, what do you believe? Like the old saying goes, what do you believe? Well, I believe like my church believes. What does your church believe? Well, they believe like my pastor believes. Well, what does your pastor believe? Well, you know, funny, you should ask. He believes just like me. And that's the problem that we've got because a lot of people have no clue what they believe. And sadly, unfortunately, there are a lot of churches that the pastor doesn't even know what he believes. And then seven, a biblical response to ethical and social malpractice in the world. Again, we've talked about slavery, for example, as one option or as, as one issue. Do you know that there are actually more slaves in the world today than there were during Roman times? There is an estimated 12 to uh, 16 million slaves in the world. These are people who have no uh, ability to be able to walk away from their masters. This is not an employee-employer relationship. This is slavery. Most of it is found across the Middle East, anywhere from parts of Africa going all the way across to places like Indonesia. Do you know who the number one consumer is of those slaves? Mm -hmm. The people in the United States. Yep. A lot of the stuff that we wear, for example, well, it's not just that, but yeah. You, you, know what's, you know what's sad is, and I was reading a statistic that was written by George Barna, funny that you should mention that. Um, I was reading a George Barna research that says every time, and I mentioned this to Dad, when the Southern Baptist Convention has their annual convention, the number of arrests in the sex trade actually triples in the city in which that convention is held. And it's been that way for several decades. That's sad. That's a sad testimony against the Church of Jesus Christ. What are some of the limitations? Number one, silence on a particular topic. And we're going to flesh this out a little bit more. Yes, Gabe. Can, can I go back to, or can we go back to number five under the benefit? 
scriptural basis for Christian behavior in church. Yes. You touched upon how we have a um, doc, uh, doctrine statement for the church. Mm-hmm. But what would that look like for the home? That, that is a great question. It's not about just developing another set of rules for the home. You know, thou shalt not leave that much orange juice in the container in the fridge. Or, you know, if there's, if there's not more than that much on the toilet roll, make sure you replace it before you leave. You know, we can have all kinds of rules like that in place. But that's actually a great question. Let, let's stop here for just a moment. Because ultimately the Bible... The purpose of following biblical principles is so that we will change. Do you remember what I gave you as a, as a homework recommendation to write down? I said, write down 75 ways in which you are selfish. You will learn a lot about yourself if you actually take me up on that and fill that out. Because we don't like what that will reveal. But we're going to start off and we might say, for example... Uh, when we talk about pertaining to life and godliness, is there any sin, for example, if you're living on your own, some of our guys here are single, uh, let's say that you're living on your own and you don't want to replace the toilet roll. Is that a sin? Nope. Is it a sin to do that if you're married? No. We would like it to be. Some of us would. But that's not the sin. What is the actual sin that is involved here? What is the biblical principle? Making an inconvenience for the next person. Okay, but ultimately there's something more than that. Thinking more highly of yourself. Thinking more highly of yourself. So for example, it boils down to these two commands. Number one, love God with all your being. And number two is to love others as yourself. There's no third command, love yourself. That's a, bibli- that's a worldly principle that is not founded in Scripture. We already do that very well. It is to love others. So if I go in and I'm only thinking about myself, and I understand that, that you know uh, life happens, you get up, you forget, you do whatever, But when you go to the fridge, and I can remember doing this as a kid, especially as a teenager, and you go into the fridge, and you get out the bottle of juice, and you leave just that much that you've got to use a molecular microscope to be able to see the amount of juice that is left in the bottle, and you turn and you put it right back in the fridge again. Are we really loving other people like we love ourselves? Would we want to do that? No. So the purposes and the principles of these, Gabe, in regards to the home is if we are seeking to change our lives, it doesn't matter whether we're living in a cave, it doesn't matter whether we're working, where we're working, the biblical principles are actually going to be the guidepost, if you will, for how we actually get to that point. For example, here's a question for you. Which came first? Work or sin? Work did. You see, work is not a result of the fall. Work was given by God to man to be able to occupy his mind and his body in order to be able to see and to be able to point to eternity. So there's a saying out there, for example, that says that we work to 
live or we live to work. What's the biblical principle? What do you think is the biblical principle of those two phrases? Do we work to live or do we live to work? We live to work. Because everything that we do is working towards the glory of God. In other words, yes, we live. We have to be able to eat. But that's not the reason why we do it. We live so that we might work to bring glory to God in everything that we do. It reflects the biblical mandate that was given prior to sin coming into the world. In fact, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 21 and 22 are the only four chapters that do not deal with the fall of man. And it's in Genesis 2 that God, actually it's in Genesis 1 that God gives man the mandate to work. So, as far as establishing a set of rules, I, I don't think that, the, that, that, that setting a, set, a standard or setting a set of rules is any more important than this. You want to write something down? I would recommend writing this down. Because this one rule will keep you from all kinds of trouble if you apply it in every area of your life. That'll save you a lot of heartache in your life if you seek to apply this one rule, which is actually found, and it's a summation, really, of love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. Two choices. So, for example, you go to the store, and your kid says, Can I have? Nope. Nope. <laughs> but, Mom... What should we be doing? Now, most parents, I've been there. I've done it. So I'm not trying to find fault with you here. I'm just trying to encourage you, especially those of you who still have little ones or even grandparents because I've seen grandparents go into the store as well. And grandson or granddaughter goes, Can I have, please? And then they just have an absolute meltdown. You know what the problem is? They haven't learned what no means. What's that? Full sentence. No means no. no, don't ask again. Now, when they're three or four years old, there's not, they're not bringing any logic to this whatsoever. It is just purely emotion. They see it. They want it right now. What they also haven't is felt the word no as well. Yeah. No means no. So if you as a parent, instead of arguing with your child... What I believe you should be saying is, are we pleasing God or are we pleasing self right now? It could be in your work relationship. Are we pleasing God or are we pleasing self? We can be driving down the road. Yes, I may want to drive 75 like everybody else does down Yellowstone, but if I'm driving 75 down Yellowstone, am I pleasing God or am I pleasing self? 
if I'm not caring for my family, am I pleasing God or am I pleasing self in the decisions that I'm making? Pleasing God or pleasing self? Does that answer your question, Gabe? All right. We're probably not going to have time to finish going through all of this. But let me go ahead. I want to make sure you've got the answers. What are some of the limitations? Number one, silence on a particular topic. Number two, partial knowledge and understanding of the entire Bible. In other words, without opening the Word of God, you're never going to know what it says. The inadequacy of human language. For example, when we talk about somebody being a servant, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning, and we were talking about the Greek word huperites, which means to be an under rower. If you don't know Greek or don't know how to find what the original author, Paul, intended, and the word that he actually wrote, you would never be able to understand one of the most poignant limitations or understandings of the word of what it means to be a servant. Mike? I was thinking about that, and I heard it somewhere, and it also goes with the movie Ben-Hur. Um, there's more to that under-roar, because they were quite frequently the first ones to die when the ship sank. So it's to be a servant, even unto death. Yeah, they they were they were chained. You know what happened in Roman times when you were when you were a slave and you died, whether it was working in the salt mines of Galicia, which is modern Spain, or whether you were working in a galley. What do you think happened to those people when they died? Trash. Trash. Right over the side. They didn't care. Finiteness of human mind. There are a lot of things we're going to go through as we found out this morning in the Sunday school class. There are things that you may struggle with in your understanding, your belief of doctrine. And the point is, not that you come to the exact same understanding that I do of Scripture or of John MacArthur or whoever. These, these are just guides. These are helpful guides. But they're just guides. The question is, if again, if you know everything there is to know in this book, but you don't make the application in your life, what good is it? Lack of spiritual discernment and growth. If you want to know if you have changed in your life, and there's a reason, for example, why we have elders, because there are going to be times when the three of us men are going to disagree about something. And there are times maybe that one of us has to be called short or caught up in, or maybe we're caught up in something, or maybe we respond in a way that is not Christ-like, and, and one of the other men have to actually confront us or bring it to our attention. There is a biblical pattern for being able to do that. But the problem we have is this. A lot of people don't want to grow beyond where they're at. They're quite comfortable. Because they don't like pain. They don't like growing pains. And growing pains aren't easy. But if you want to know truly where you're at, I want you to look around this room, and Lord willing, if He spares all of our lives, and we come back here next year, around this time, November, the week before Thanksgiving. I want you to have a desire and a goal in your mind that you should be able to go to any other person in this room. And you should be able to ask them, do I resemble the Lord Jesus Christ more today than I did in November of 2023? That'll tell you whether you're growing or not. Or go to your family, go to your wife, go to your husband, go to your children and ask them, do I look more like Jesus Christ today than I did last year? And you know the reason why most people have never taken me up on that? 
down through the years of my ministry because they don't want to be told the truth because it's not easy you have to go through several of you may in your jobs but do you still have APRs and EPRs in the military or what do they call them now uh, they just changed to EPDs, but okay so basically it's airman performance evaluation okay so if you can't get promoted without having a good one right Okay, so for example, if you go, and Mike, you remember this, and Dad and my wife and others who have served in the military, so basically they judge you on how well you do your job, how well you know your job, how well you implement the things, and whether you're growing in your leadership abilities, whether you're growing as a, an airman or as a sergeant or even as an officer. And without those, you come to the promotion table and you're going to find out, nope, you didn't make the cut. It's no different in the Christian life. If we are actually filled with the Holy Spirit of God, but you look the same today as you did five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, then you should probably be doing a checkup to see whether you truly belong to God or not. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to change in every single area in every single way, because sometimes the changes may be microscopic. Sometimes they may be undiscernible to anybody but God. The question is whether you're striving to be faithful with what God has for you in your life. You may be struggling in a particular area with a particular sin and another brother or sister across the table from you or standing at the front teaching may have conquered that a long time ago. That doesn't make us better than you or vice versa. It means that God has already done a work in that particular area in our life so now we move forward to the next area in which he chips off another piece of that old rough rock. To make us look like the diamond that he wants us to be. We're going to stop there for the evening. And we're going to deal, Lord willing, next time we're going to finish up the relationship of systematic theology to doctrine. And I want you to make sure that you've got this particular section. Um, that you look at this particular section because we're going to look at the reasons why biblical doctrine and false doctrine find themselves find themselves prevalent within the local church and you're only going to have one of a couple of options in the church you're going to have people who are striving to do what God wants in their lives or you're going to have people who are stagnant you're going to have people who begin to love biblical doctrine or you're going to have people that are going to begin to hate biblical doctrine because they're not going to like what they're being told because biblical doctrine does and will guaranteed change your life. When you go into the military, for those of you who didn't go into the military, first thing they do is they make sure everybody looks the same. They give you a haircut. You have to all wear the same uniform. You may be tall, you may be short, you may have a different skin color, you may have a different language as your main language. But at the end of that military basic training, you will all come out as a soldier or as an airman or as a sailor. You will all know how to salute, you will know how to march. You will know how to behave as somebody who is proud to call themselves a member of the U.S. military. And if you and I are walking in the path of the Savior... As 2 Timothy is our final verse this evening, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one, no one 
that wants to be a good soldier entangles themselves with the affairs of this life. Why? So that he may please him who had chosen him to be a soldier. If you and I are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this evening, we are to be soldiers. And we're not just to be any kind of soldier, we're to be a good soldier. And to be a good soldier requires work. It requires discipline. It requires putting on the boots and marching when you don't feel like it. It means pulling guard duty. It means eating what you are given. It means basically being an under rower for Jesus Christ. And if he says row until you die, you row. If he wants to promote you to greater things and greater fame and glory like some missionaries, why is it that somebody like Paul Washer is well known around the world? But there are other people who are just as valuable and faithful to the ministry who will never be known across the world because God has given it to him and that's a cross he has to bear. It also means greater accountability. Mike? I wasn't sure if that was a rhetorical question. Oh, no, I, yeah. Yeah. You answered So thank you for coming this evening. I know if you have any questions or whatever, feel free to ask. And uh, thank you for coming and may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. Amen. Amen.